scripture reading for today is from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In the paths, in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You may be seated. Uh, My name is Kent Smith, in case you're watching the live stream and you don't know me, recent graduate of SBTS, and my wife Tiffany and our two children are sitting up front here. And it is my great privilege to bring you the word of God today. So before we dig in, let's pray and ask for his help. Oh, Father God, we, we come now to your word and, and to your gospel, the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Pray that as we look at the, the effects that sin has had on all of us, that would not be Uh, lost on on any individual here, but we would all be reminded afresh of the need for a Savior. Even right now, even even as I pray, as our our minds testify to the sinfulness within us through those distractions and and temptations that are constantly cycling through, Lord, we we pray that you would silence them for a time and and let us dwell on, on your word. Holy Spirit, we believe in you, we trust you, we praise you for for the work that you do in our hearts and and conforming us to the likeness of Christ. Pray that the the next few moments in your word would would bring about some of that change. We ask these things for your son's sake, amen. Last week, uh, we began a a short series on the gospel, just four parts. Um, The week prior to that, we actually began. Last week, we all stayed home and tried to survive the blizzard, so I'm glad that we did. Uh, But I noted then, and I will reiterate now, that the large part of the reason the American church finds itself where it does culturally at this moment is because we have lost focus on the gospel. We traded in the proclamation of the gospel for self-help sermons. We traded in worship for entertainment. And we traded in genuine fellowship for religious clubs and societies. 
If we are to be the kind of church that God calls us to be in these times, then we need to put away with those distractions and, and the ideas of, of men. And we need to get back to how God says we ought to be doing things. And that starts with the gospel. The gospel must be at the center of our lives and our churches if we are going to have any of the power of God that he would equip us with. Through the proclamation of the gospel does the Holy Spirit change hearts and minds, and there is no other way. No other way. And so last week, we looked at the first part of the gospel, the Holy Creator. And uh, we looked at who God is. And just like the, the title suggests, we did that in two main points, Holy and Creator. We examined the holiness of God. We saw that there is truly none like Him. We saw that the Lord your God is one. Only He is all-powerful. Only He is present everywhere. Only He has perfect knowledge, perfect righteousness. He is the standard of what is good and just. He is holy because of who He is. And so He can't not be these things. This is who God is, and to be anything else would make him less than God. What he has done is also incredible, and that is where we began to focus on the title of creator. God created everyone and everything. We looked at the fact that God alone is creator, and everyone and everything else is creature. So two distinct camps. You have God, and you have everything else. Now, this has several implications. First off, it makes sense of why it is so hard to grasp the attributes of God, to understand those things about him, uh, because simply put, he is God and we are not. And that difference alone accounts for all of that awe and wonder. Whenever something about God is dumbfounding, like the idea of eternity or all of time being just a single moment for him, any of these things that make our head spins is, is just a symptom of us being creature and him being creator. It ought to feel humbling and that humility ought to be turned around in praise to God and who he is. Another implication is that because God is the creator, he has inherent rights that we do not. If he rightfully owns and rules all of creation, then it is his to do what he pleases with. Today we turn from understanding who God is to understanding who man is. The state of man is, is what I've titled this message. Uh, throughout this sermon, when I say man, you can interpret that as all humans, mankind, man and woman. Uh, you can rest assured this is about all of us. And the world has completely confused who man is, haven't they? As evangelicals, this is probably the portion of the gospel that we have most neglected. We may have undersold who God is, and, and in future sermons, I'll, I'll speak to maybe how we've, we've gotten other parts a little bit wrong, but, but this part, we've just completely taken out of the gospel. But if you don't understand this bad news, you won't understand the good news. 
So I want to begin by setting the record straight on who we once were, who we became, and who we are now. Now, like last Sunday, we're going to deal with this topically, so I'll, I'll jump around to a couple of different passages. Uh, but the last note that I want to give you is that this is a sermon on who man is apart from Christ. So generally, when you hear me say us and we, I'm not talking about the church and those in Christ. I'm talking about a humanity without Christ. So let's begin in your notes under the heading of who we once were. Who we once were. We can open up to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to go to verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. I'm going to read through uh, really the end of the chapter there. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So anyone who has been in church for any length of time is familiar with this passage. Even those outside the church are familiar with this passage now, as in our day, it has become a, a sort of key battleground between Christianity and the world. Here is where evolution and creation go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. Here is where liberal theologians abandon the authority of Scripture and sound interpretation of it, to accommodate the scientific theory of the day. I am not here to discuss that, but I'm also not going to pass up the opportunity to reinforce to you that Darwinism is nonsense and cannot be reconciled with Scripture. Scripture is absolutely truthful. So there, I didn't walk right by it. We said it. But I don't want to talk about how God created man in, in some physical science terms, uh, let alone when. God created man. And we aren't here to, to really entertain that debate between Darwinism and Scripture. I don't really even want to dig into why God created man today. I want to look at who God made us. I'm going to do that in, in three really short subpoints. Go back to the text and let's look at verse 27. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, anytime the Old Testament repeats something in close proximity, you can be sure that it is important. So when we look at it that way, two things stand out in that text. The, the first is that the, the fact that God did indeed create us, and we already touched on, on God as creator last week. It needs to be said here, and, and this is the first subpoint that we were made alive. Alive. We owe our existence to him, every breath and every heartbeat, and he gave life to mankind in full when we were created. In full. If God did not sustain our lives and the universe, there would be none. Steve Lawson illustrates this wonderfully when he says this, quote, There is a sense in which when we die, God has not taken our lives so much as stopped giving it. But this is not merely alive like you and I know life. We were so alive that death was an unknown concept. Life so full, so abundant, that the cares you and I feel each day in growing old, in the worry of what will happen to our loved ones when we are gone, these things did not exist. Imagine what you and I could do with our lives if these concerns weren't heavy on us day in and day out. If death wasn't something we had to plan on. That is something of life that I don't know. But the next word that stands out here in that text is image. See the word image in there. When God made us, he did not make us like he made all other creatures. No, we were different from all other creation. What separates us is that who that we were made to be. We were made to be an image, a likeness of God on earth. What does that, what does that mean? Does that mean God looks like a man and we, we resemble him in appearance? Well, no, not until the incarnation of Jesus Christ anyway. But uh, does, does it mean we are divine in essence in the same way God is? Well, no, it, it certainly can't mean that. We're creatures. He's creator. The text tells us what it means. It says, let them have dominion over fish, over the sea, over the whole earth. Let them have dominion. Subdue it, he commands us. As God rules everything, everywhere, so man was to rule the earth. If God is king of all, then here in creation, he made man to be his vice regent, his undersecretary, his representative on earth. Under the lordship of God, humanity was to rule over creation. So there is a, a sense here that we were royalty. I would put that as, as your second sub-point. I would, I would say royalty. So we go from alive to, to royalty. Under the lordship of God, we were assigned to be lords over the earth. The task was to take the Garden of Eden as an example and make the whole world like it. 
Sinclair Ferguson says this. He says, all the world was made good, but not all the world was made garden. And that was our task. From the beginning, we were made to work, but the work was productive. It was pleasant, enjoyable, lovely. And this was for many reasons, but I have no doubt what the chief of them was. Have you ever noticed when you have a job to do, how much easier it is with a good group of folks helping out? I know, uh, you know, one of the things I've learned about myself is how much I enjoy the task at hand doesn't really depend on what that task is so much as who I'm doing it with. Now, this was certainly true for Adam. Let's go to chapter 2 now. Go in your Bibles to chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Third subpoint under who we once were. Connected. We were connected. Look at how God in this text speaks directly to Adam. We get other indications throughout the text that presumably God and man would walk together, spend time together. God was a familiar person to Adam. And you know, the, you know the old hymn, right? And he walks with me and he talks with me. He tells me I am his own. Can you imagine? Just imagine with me the, the closeness, the warmness the depth of comfort you would have walking side by side with the creator of the universe. The peace of seeing, seeing his personal interest in you. You and I long for the day when we see Christ face to face, our faith made sight. Adam had that with God. We had that. This is the communion we were made to have with God. And not just with God, but with our loved ones. God makes Eve as a helper, and Adam and Eve love each other perfectly. She helps him, he cares for her. The natural inclination of each of them is towards the good and care of their spouse. It is not difficult, but it is natural. You know, the very first words 
of Adam in the text here, the, the first male, the first husband recorded in the Bible is a song about how he loves his beautiful wife. Verse 23 is a song in Hebrew. This, this is a, a beautiful romance with no taint of selfishness. No personality conflict, no friction, just love. Adam's focus was on doing the work of God and loving his wife. Eve's focus was on helping Adam do God's work. And God spent personal direct time with them because he was pleased to do so. Relationally, they were perfectly and effortlessly connected, both to each other and to God. We have a good and beautiful world, effortless love and close communion, man tied to woman, woman tied to man, both tied to God in perfect relationship. We were fully alive. We were royalty on earth, and we were perfectly connected. This is who we once were. But in a single moment, with a single decision, the whole world changed. And this is the moment theologians call the fall. In your notes, we can begin our, our second section of who we became. Who we became. And God makes this, this beautiful world for Adam and Eve to enjoy. And in all of it is, is this tree from which they are commanded not to eat. I don't think this was arbitrary. I don't think it was uh, God just, you know, anti-fruit in this one particular tree or something like that. Uh, I think this was God saying, I, I made all these beautiful things for you because I love you. Here is an opportunity for you to demonstrate your love for me. Because how do we demonstrate our love for God? If you love me, you obey my commands. I want us to take a moment and just look closely at what happens here. Just slow down the pace a little bit with which we normally read this. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3. And I'll just start at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So this is in verse 1 here. This is Satan speaking through a serpent. This is like a demonic miracle, if you will. And the first thing he asks Eve is if God really said what he said. He sees if he can't get her to doubt the word of God. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And you'll note here that Eve does a decent job of affirming the words of God, okay? And does she get it perfectly right? No, she doesn't. Um, but please see, the, the text does not say she was successfully tempted at this point. All right? Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So first, Satan tries to make Eve doubt what God had said to her. But when that didn't work, he tried to make her doubt God's character. 
Look at the accusations here. Look at them. It says, oh, Eve, God is not looking out for you. God does not have your best interest in mind. He is not good, is the accusation being made. He wants to keep you in your place. You deserve better than what God has given you. This is slander against God in the highest fashion. Think back to last week when we learned that God, in order to be God, inherent in who he is, must be perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly good, perfectly loving. The accusation here is not simply that God is not good, but that he is not God. Not any more God than Eve could be if she would just reach out and take it for herself. And if he isn't good, if he doesn't have Eve's best interest in mind, and nothing separates her from becoming God other than how she has blindly submitted to him, why shouldn't she take the fruit? She deserves it. God's rule about fruit is asinine, outdated, detached from the culture. Eve knows what is best for Eve, and besides that, she wants it. And if God were good, he would let her have it because she wants it. And if he isn't good, why should she obey him? Now here is sin. Here is sin. Let's go back to the text and and just read with me. So when the woman saw, she saw for herself. She ignores how God told her to view this situation, the devastation that this tree would bring upon them, and decided not to see the world through God's eyes in faith and trust, but instead to judge for herself, absent God. Friends, this this is a catastrophe. This is a train wreck. So we were made to be under the lordship of God and ruling over creation. And now we've completely inverted that design. We're letting ourselves take advice from a piece of creation And we're letting that advice be rule over the God who we are supposed to be serving. We are placing ourselves, our judgment, our will above that of God's. This is not royalty anymore. This this royalty is not good enough. We tried to take the throne from God. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And now we approach what I think is the second saddest text in all of scripture. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Adam and Eve recognized the the footsteps of God in the garden. How many times do you suppose God had come to this spot and found Adam and Eve excitedly waiting 
to spend time with him, to tell him what wonders they had discovered in his creation today. To thank him for those as they walk side by side. But this time, there's no one. Where are you? Can you imagine the sadness, the hurt? Not, not because God is now lonely or he's worried that he lost Adam and Eve somehow. God does not get lonely and he knows exactly where they are. If you are a parent and you have caught your child doing something bad and you ask them about it and they lie to you, you have felt something like this. Or perhaps you have secretly learned that someone you were in a relationship with was, was cheating on you. And it wounds you deeply. And before you've confronted them, they are headed out the door and you ask, where are you going? And they tell you what you know to be a lie. And they walk out the, go the door to, to go and, and be with their lover. Lying uncaring, and you know it. The sadness you feel in that moment, that someone you love so much would hurt you so much, would treat you with such indifference when you had given them so much that was special. Where are you? That sweet communion man had with God, it's over. But they aren't just severed from God. That's not the only relationship in tatters now. No longer are man and woman's desires naturally slanted towards each other. Now, sin has corrupted that too. In verse 12, we see it as Adam lays the blame on Eve. And then in verse 15, we see that Eve is no longer naturally inclined to help Adam. These are the consequences of sin. We are no longer connected like we once were. And then finally, Adam and Eve were dead. Life was no longer theirs. Not as they once had it. And listen, I, I know they went on physically living. I'm aware. I know they left the garden. They had kids. But God said they would die. That was the covenant he made with Adam. And they did die. See, sin kills, and Adam and Eve left that garden spiritually dead. And this is a problem for all of humanity, because you see, two spiritually dead people don't somehow give birth to spiritually alive people. Not only did we go from royalty to rebels, from communion with God to being in, in a, a chasm in our relationship, but we passed from life to death. Death has settled into the soul of every man while our physical bodies just linger. Waiting for the day that death comes to claim those as well. When they return to the dust from which they were made, this is the covenant reality that Adam now resides in. And just as a son inherits the wealth or the lack thereof from his father, so we too have been past this failed covenant. 
every person born after Adam resides in the consequences of his covenant. They are physically born alive, breathing and crying, but spiritually stillborn and silent. Which brings me to my final main point. Who we are now. I want to talk uh, just quickly about two crucial aspects of that. And the first one has this big title because I couldn't figure out a way to make it shorter. The hereditary resemblance of our sins. And then our broken desires. It is easy for us to look at Adam and Eve and think, well, what fools? Surely they didn't really believe that they were going to overthrow God. He is God. And now it's time to bring this home. Time to make it personal because it is personal. Don't consider Adam and Eve's lives for a moment. Forget I mentioned any sort of covenant And for a moment, don't consider the life of someone that you know who is happily living in sin. No. Consider your life and examine it honestly. Look at the sin in it. When was the last time you sinned? What was it? Let's not be thinking of, of sin in general. You can think of something specific. I'm certain of that. Listen to your conscience and see if it doesn't convict you. Children grow up to be much like their parents, and that is true of us. Our sins look just like the sins of our first parents. Each and every time you and I sin, we are saying, just like Eve as she reached for the fruit, Not your will be done, God, but mine. In the act of sin, no matter how small we think it may be, we demonstrate that we don't think God cares for us, that we don't think he wants what is best for us, that he cannot be trusted. And so if we are to be fulfilled, we must take charge of the universe ourselves. And in that moment of sin, we seat ourselves on the throne of God and we declare ourselves holy, holy, holy. Angels must look on in bewilderment. I mean, just completely shocked as they actually are next to the almighty God in his blinding light, his inapproachable fire. And they must be shocked that such small creatures would be so confused, so deceived about our place in this world so as to think we could usurp the glory of God. If it weren't so tragic and the consequences so dire, the disproportion of it would be comical. We are not simply victims of sin. We are foolish rebels and traitors against the sovereign king of the universe, and we've been caught with the weapons in our hands. It's like Rylan read for us, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. 
Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Each act of sin you and I and anyone in this world commits bears in it, at its core, the same root of sin of Adam and Eve. In the same way, you look in a mirror and you see the, in, in your face the resemblance of your mother or your father. Look into your sin and see that you bear the resemblance of Adam. Let that bear witness that the curse of death is, that was laid on him has been laid on you too. It's been laid on all of his children. The wrath of the God so powerful he spoke and filled every inch of the universe is turned towards those who commit sin. He will not let his name be slandered or his throne assaulted. He will not let the wicked go unpunished. And as surely as he is righteous, he must punish the sinner. And the penalty of sin is death. Oh, but can't God just ignore my sin? Just pardon it. He cannot. God is just, and he must administer justice. As Spurgeon once said, a God who could pardon without justice might one of these days condemn without reason. God cannot do that and maintain his justice. Oh, but I've been, I've been mostly good. My sins are just small ones. Small sins are especially heinous. You would betray God for so little. Is he of that little worth? And how exactly do you know that that little sin isn't the first step down a path to much greater sins? You don't. You can't know that. Oh, but I won't sin anymore. I promise. It's too late. Even if you manage to never, ever sin again from now until the day you die. You already owed God that. He already deserved that from your life. You will have only given God what he was already due, and the sins that you previously committed remain unpaid for. There is no avenue for you to pay this back. You cannot repay this debt, and a time is coming where, when God will collect on it fully. Oh, but I can try harder. In saying that you will try harder, you admit that you do not want to love God. You admit that your heart is turned from him. You say he is not worthy of love, but maybe you can muster some up. You are Eve right before she reaches for the fruit. She is already broken. You demonstrate the madness of a mind infected with sin, inclined to and desiring what harms you rather than what benefits you. This is insanity. And you know, each time you fail, it gets worse. The sin that you once found shocking, that you once found an exciting novelty, now it's just common to you. 
And so you seek out the next and even more harmful piece of novelty that you can find. And this is because sin is hollow and empty. It cannot and will not ever actually satisfy your appetite. And so it is insatiable. How far will you go chasing these novelties? You've warped your desires to your own harm. And you have destroyed yourself. If all of this sounds hopeless, that is because it is. You and I are not on trial with the possibility of being found innocent. The trial has already happened. The judgment has already been issued. The verdict was guilty and the punishment is now being served. Partially in this life, fully in the next. You either get to now live your life reveling in your sin just digging into the filth of it, or you get to spend your life trying to earn some kind of righteousness through works, never paying off the debt and dying tired and and work to the bone in your grave. Those are the options. This brings me to my, my final point. Final point. Broken desires. Robert Murray McShane is one of my favorite pastors to read. He died at a young age, and in his diary he wrote, I have discovered that the seeds of every sin known to man are in my heart. And that is the core of the problem, isn't it? Sin has corrupted the heart of man. And you might be thinking, you know, who is this guy? What right does he have to say these things? But listen, it's not me saying it. It's the Bible saying it. And your minds testify to it. Have you ever been involved in a debate of free will versus predestination? I think most everybody has. We could talk about that for a long time. It's not, it's not the point. Uh, the only reason I bring it up is simply because in that debate, the advocates of free will will note that people are always free to choose. And indeed, this, this is readily observable. People make decisions all the time. We, may, we made decisions today. I can say that and still confidently tell you that the will of man is not free. People make choices, yes, but why do they make the choices that they do? They don't make random choices. No, they, they make choices based on what they desire. Desired outcomes drive choices. Behind everyone's will is a desire, and your desires are in bondage to sin. Think about a food you don't like. Kids in the room, shout out a food that you don't like. I know we have anti-broccoli people here. What you got? What's a food you don't like? Broccoli? Lots of broccoli fans. Okay. Mushrooms. Yes. I don't like mushrooms either. Dairy dairy stuff. Absolutely, sweetheart. That's wonderful. Okay. Why don't you just choose to like it? Because it's gross. So just, just choose to like it then. Well, you can't. You can't just choose to like these things. You can't help what you desire. I agree. 
You can't. And so when I tell you that no man in his natural post-fall state desires God, do you begin to see the desperation of our condition? You cannot simply decide to start loving God. And this is why the Bible, I'm convinced, doesn't talk much about our wills. It doesn't even mention free will. It talks about our hearts. That is where the problem is the desires of our heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And men and women around the world don't recognize this. They, they don't feel that their hearts are wicked. Their consciences are not troubled by the sin in which they live. And some may even say, if God were real, he would stop all this. I would hear his voice. I would be troubled in my soul. And I would stop this. Loved ones, that, that silence, that silence that a lot of the world experiences, that is the judgment of God in their lives. He does not call to them. He does not say, where are you? Like he says to Adam. Like it says in Romans 1.24, God has given them up to sin and the disease has so infected every part of them that they no longer recognize it as something foreign within their nature. That is a deafening silence. So what's the diagnosis here? What's the conclusion we are to draw? Humanity does not need to simply make better choices or try harder to treat each other better or invent some new political system. We need new hearts we need our desires turned back to God instead of towards sin. We are dead and we need to be made alive again. We cannot help what we desire. The dead cannot bring themselves back to life. And a rightly angry God must and will deliver the final punishment for our crooked desires when our bodies give way. It would seem that the outcome is fixed. And that's it. That is the covenant between God and Adam and all his lineage. To all in this covenant, or said another way, to all in Adam, the next physical breath you take is not promised to you. It may be your last. It is the king of the universe who decides that, and when he stops giving you breath, the damnation in this covenant comes in full, and the eternal weeping and gnashing begins. But there is a way back to God. There is a new life and a new heart and new desires that can be made yours. There is an ark to preserve you in the flood of God's wrath. There is a fountain filled with blood and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all of their guilty stains. It is my great joy and privilege to tell you of the surpassing beauty and worth and love of my Lord Jesus Christ, who can save you from your sins as he paid the penalty for them in his death. In him is peace with God, rest for your souls, rest from works-based righteousness, freedom from the slavery of sin. 
And even though you may think your sins are too many and too severe to be forgiven, His mercy is still more. And to my Lord, we will turn next week. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we, we praise you for your goodness, for your kindness, for the creation that you, you gave us, the responsibilities that you, you set before us. And Lord, our, our hearts ache now to get back to what we once had, to, to who we once were. So I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, just work the miracle only you can work in, in changing hearts and changing desires. May this old creation die and a new creation live in each one of us with hearts turned towards you, desires for what is right. Oh, Jesus, we, we praise you for making that possible with your death on the cross. Amen. Well, the signs of the covenant with Adam are quite obvious. Uh, right now, sin rages out there in the world, much like our blizzards last week. Uh, they are just impossible to ignore. The covenant of Christ is much more subtle. It works in strange, unexpected places and in small ways. God does not often come in the wind or the fire, but in a gentle whisper. The work of the Holy Spirit can be so gradual in our lives that we fail to see it. On top of that, we are predisposed to appreciate and understand the physical before the spiritual, and so often our, our sins feel much more heavy than our spiritual realities in Christ. So, the, Christ, the, the Christian is in desperate need of a reminder that he is no longer in Adam, but in Christ, forgiven of sin and made right with God because of the sacrifice of Christ. Praise Christ for his wisdom and goodness. He has given us just such a reminder of the spiritual reality that we can touch, we can see, that we can taste. And we come to the Lord's table now for that much-needed reminder. If you have done as the Bible has uh, asked you to do and examined yourself and know that you are no longer in Adam, but are in the covenant with Christ, then I invite you to come take the symbol of his sacrifice and the new covenant. Take it back to your seat, hold it, and we will partake together. Matthew 26, 26. Christ says, take, eat, this is my body. And Christ says, drink all of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins.